0: Good, it's good to be back together. And uh, so I'm going to share a bit from this passage tonight. This um, is not a straightforward passage, if you were listening to it. It's quite a shocking passage. Um, it was actually um, one of the lectionary readings last week. And I felt God say that, um, that it would be good to speak on it tonight. So we're going to, we're going to look at it. And we're going to just briefly think about it. And then we're going to kind of have a time, we're going to have an opportunity, we're going to share communion together later. And maybe that's an opportunity to respond a little bit to um, some of what we've heard in that section. Just that first bit again, large crowds were travelling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's lots of really lovely fluffy passages in the Bible that preachers love preaching from. Um, and then there's some quite difficult things that Jesus said, quite shocking things. And it's easy sometimes to avoid those things. But I felt God was wanting to, to speak to us here in St. Matt's about some of this stuff. So I'm going to do my best to just try and unpick a little bit of this um, tonight. Um, as most of you know, I've um, been away on holidays. I've been really blessed that I was able to do that this year. And um, the holidays are wonderful things. Amongst other things, this year we went camping. Um, uh, and uh, we had a good time. We went to Cornwall down on the Lizard. We had really good, good, good weather. Now, when I was young, we used to camp quite a bit. We used to go with my parents. We used to travel around France. We used to go in a caravan with my four brothers. And um, those were the days when you'd all pile into the back of a car on these kind of black PVC sort of seats that would get horribly hot. and No one had seat belts in the back. And you, know, you think back, you think it's crazy we used to pile down into France like that. And when I was, when I was young, younger, and we went camping, camping, it just seemed really easy. It seemed a really, really fun thing to do. You looked forward to it, um, you got excited about it, you perhaps told people, then you went on it, and you enjoyed it, and then you came home. Now I'm old uh, old, <laughs> and I've got children, it seems like a lot harder work. Um, I mentioned this in the kind of um, August blog. It's really hard work going camping, I've discovered. And I'm I'm always staggered at the amount of effort and energy that's required to pack a car to go camping. And just the sheer volume of stuff that you kind of... Take with you that you pack. And every year I say to myself, next year I'm going to pack less. And every year we seem to pack more. Some of you may know what this feels like a little bit. And we pack every conceivable necessity uh, that you think you might need. Um, You know, the family motto is sort of (coughs) hope for sunshine. sort of brace yourself for weather Armageddon, so you take everything you could possibly need, sunbed, sunblock, snow shovel, it's all there, it's all ready in the cart just in case you need it, and enough clothes to see you through every possible conceivable type of weather from blistering sunshine to monsoon, and it all goes in the boots and all the kids stuff as well, all the bits you might want. Um, I've never been one for lists. Sarah, my wife, is a brilliant list maker. I'm not so good at lists. But when I go on holiday, I'm there ticking them off that that everything's there with us. Everything that you could possibly need. There's epic planning and epic consideration. And that, I think, is a little bit about what Jesus is trying to get at in this rather striking and challenging passage that uh, we just heard read to us. Here's Jesus, he's on the road, he's travelling, and there's large crowds who are now going with him. Um, And I think it's probably because of these throngs of people that are following him, they're inquisitive, they're questioning, they're excited, they're anticipating some sort of marvels. I think it's because of these curious masses that the focus really becomes about discipleship. And I know that's a buzzword that gets used around church discipleship, and rightly so. But I'm not sure we always know what we mean by discipleship. Um, The the deanery plan, which is this kind of, that's the Church of England churches. We're so blessed in the city. There are many churches that we're connected with. The kind of Church of England ones, the Anglican ones in the city, have this thing called a deanery plan. And it's all about discipleship. And it's actually really exciting. I suspect that lots of deanery plans around the country aren't the type of thing that you would want to go and read on a kind of Saturday night. But the one in Bath is amazing. It's about making disciples. It's about every disciple becoming a disciple, making disciples. It's about every church being a discipleship community. And every opportunity out there, a discipleship opportunity. It's really great. I'd encourage you to go and have a look at it. Just... Google Deanery, Bath Deanery plan, and it comes up, it's all about discipleship. So why does Jesus want to talk, what is, what's he trying to get at to these crowds who are following him? What's he trying to do? Well, he's on the road, as I've said, but this is really important. This isn't any old fun day out. He's not going to Lyme Regis for the weekend, you know, full boards and some, hopefully get some sunshine. He's not kind of the crowds following him to a really fun place. Where's he going? Well, he's going towards Jerusalem. And he knows exactly where he's heading. He's heading to the cross. If you go back to Luke 9.51, it says Jesus sets himself on the journey for Jerusalem. He knows what he's going to. So he's heading to the cross. And he's got all these bubbly, excited, enthusiastic bunch of followers who are gathering along with him, who are expecting all sorts of wonderful things. And Jesus is knowing where he's heading. He knows he's heading to the cross. And so I'm sure that's why this is the ripe time to have this sort of challenging discussion with them. Perhaps you've heard me mention this before, there's a a, a sign, I collect signs. There's one on the Alaskan Highway, it's called the Alcan Highway. It's a very famous sign. Um, It was the original one, it's often been quoted in other contexts. This this highway was built during the Second World War um, to connect Alaska with the States. And it goes through British Columbia and it goes through some really, really tough areas. Through the, and out to connect to the Yukon and at the beginning of this one of these roads there's this um, famous sign that's been copied in many places and, it, and it, it says this choose your rut carefully you're going to be in it for the next 200 miles it's kind of a funny thing and people laugh at it but I wonder if that's true sometimes in our lives, maybe in our spiritual lives in our journeys with God, or maybe in our experience with church, choose your rut carefully, you're going to be in it for the next 200 miles. Signs like that may, you know, they make us laugh a bit. But actually a sign like that has a sobering effect on the average driver when they get to that point in the road. It causes you to pause and look at your fuel gauge, to think, have I got enough fuel for this journey? It makes you think if you've got enough water... Am I going to be okay if my car breaks down? And if you're going through in the winter, you make sure there's a blanket and a snow shovel in your car at least. It just causes you to sort of stop and consider the journey you're about to take because it's going to be tough and there's going to be challenges. And what happens if your car breaks down and you get a puncture? Are you ready? Are you prepared for the difficulty that might lie ahead? Setting out on roads like that requires at least a little forethought. And in our text, such wisdom is all the more important, I think. The crowds who come to Jesus to travel with him may not know it, but this journey is no light matter. It's really interesting, those first disciples who followed Jesus, do you remember when he went to them and they were fishing and he said, follow me, and they abandoned their nets and they abandoned their family and they followed him and they didn't really know who or what they were following. It was a a thing of the spirit. The Spirit of God came over those disciples and they heard this call of the Master and they, they just responded in their hearts like their hearts were caught. What about all of the crowds who are following Jesus now? The crowds, I think, it's a little bit different. Why are they following Jesus? Well, they've heard all about him. They've heard about the blessings. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard about these wonders that this incredible man, this incredible man of God is doing. They've heard about his teaching. There's something electric about his personality, his, his charisma, spiritual charisma, that just seems to captivate people. And so they're pulled along by the crowd. They're excited, I expect. And they're following him probably because of the blessings they hope to experience. Maybe they want to be healed, or maybe people in their family do. They're looking for a touch of God, and they're excited. That's good. That's okay. The crowds, it seems, have looked at the fringe benefits of hanging out with Jesus and think, well, this has got to be the place to be. But perhaps it's a little bit like stray puppies that just sort of follow someone. They don't quite know where they're going, but they think it's going to be a good place to go. And that's okay. Jesus did draw people to himself and continues to do so today. But what about the bigger picture? What about the cost? What about the challenges? What about the sacrifices? And I think Jesus is keen to help people understand that. You see, sometimes I think the church has done Jesus as promoted Christianity in an unhelpful way. We've kind of sold it like we're selling a wonderful product. And we make it sound like your life will be perfect if you follow Jesus. And many wonderful things can happen. We've experienced incredible healings in this church. We've experienced incredible blessings. We personally in our lives have experienced God's touch, and it's exciting. But you know, there's also incredible costs to following Jesus. There's incredible challenges. The world, we're told, will despise you, hate you. There will be persecution. There will be difficulty. And sometimes we need to be prepared to acknowledge that. Of course, we never go through those things alone. We go through with Christ. And so Jesus, I think, wants to speak to the crowd. And his response to them in twenty-six and verse 26 and 27 is striking. Let me say it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, when we hear those verses about hating your family and your own life and carrying the cross, um, it sounds really harsh. It sounds horrendous. Is that Jesus? Did he really say that? But we need to understand it's kind of typical of the hyperbolic kind of language, the over exaggerated language that Jesus actually uses quite frequently in his teaching to just shock people out of their sort of apathetic stupor, to make them question, to make them go, What, what did he just say? Did he really just say what I think he just said? It's incredibly powerful. I think also, to help us understand maybe, um, there's an idiom used in Hebrew, perhaps, that will help us understand. It's used in Genesis 29, verses 13 and 31. We hear that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. You may remember that story, you can go back and look at it. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and that Leah was hated by Jacob. A similar use of the word for hate occurs in Deuteronomy 21, where it's clear that actually the word hate isn't in a way that we would understand it, perhaps hatred as we would understand it, but it's rather one of preference or allegiance to someone. And that's what we see in Luke, that's what we see in Matthew. Jesus isn't talking about us hating people, hating family, hating families in terms of an emotional response but what he's saying, rather he's calling them and us to undivided loyalty. To himself above all family loyalties. That Jesus comes first. He means to be first. He was the firstborn among all creation and he wants to be first in all of our lives. And there are so many things shouting and pulling to put themselves on the throne of our life. Whether it's relationships or security, or purpose, or jobs. It's not that any of those things are wrong, but Jesus says, I want to be your first love. Do you remember Jesus' words to Peter when they'd finished eating? That's amazing, amazing reconciliation. It's the heart of a father, isn't it? Jesus being so bruised by Peter, so let down by his best friend. You know, the one who said, you know, if they leave you, if they forsake you, if all the others run, hide, I won't, Jesus. I'll always be there for you. And then we have that shocking scene where Jesus is being, is arrested. And across the fire, across the courtyard, Peter denies Jesus three times. And there's that last time when Jesus looks, as Peter says those words, I don't even know And it's clear from the text that he swears that upon I don't even know the flipping man. I don't know him. He denies Jesus. And then the cock crows three times. So Peter's in this place of just desolation. Let Jesus down. And what does Jesus do? Well, he wants to restore him. He wants to restore that relationship. He wants to call him back. For Peter, fear overcame love. Fear conquered his heart and instead of standing up for Christ, standing up for Jesus, he backed away and gave in to fear. But God's perfect love casts out fear and Jesus returns to Peter on the beach, doesn't he? And he meets with him and he says to him when they've finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, "Feed my lambs." He does it three times. He, it's almost like he's undoing what Peter in his denials—those three accusations, those three denials. Jesus asked him three times, "Do you love me? Do you love me more than these?" Peter, I know you love me, but love can be such a fragile, fickle thing. Do you love me more, more than these? I wonder what the more was. And those different theologians have different thoughts. Is Jesus pointing at the nets? Do you love me more than these? Is he he pointing at Peter's job that he's gone back to? When things often go wrong, we often return to what we know, don't we? Peter goes back to fishing. Is Jesus pointing at the nets saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your job security? More than the sense of well-being you get from your job. Do you love me more than these? Or is he pointing to the other disciples? Is he saying, Peter, I know you love your friends and they're great, but do you love me more than them? Or is he pointing to the masses? Is he pointing to the world or maybe to family? And is he asking, do you love me more than these? Well, that's the challenge for you and for me, as it was for Peter. That Jesus says the same of me. I love my children. I love my children. I love being a dad. Sometimes it's challenging. (laughs) But I love my kids. I would die for them in a blink of an eye. I love them so much. I love them so much, sometimes it hurts. You'll know what that's like, many of you. But Jesus says to me, Tim, do you love me more than these? I love my wife. Jesus says, Tim, do you love me more than these? And he says that to each of us. Do you love me more than these? And he looks you in the eye and Maybe there'll be different things that he's asking of us. He doesn't want us to despise those things. But he's asking us, do you trust me to put me truly first in your life? Above all things. And I have to acknowledge and be honest and say, sometimes Jesus, I don't. Forgive me, Father, I want you. I do love you more than these. What Jesus is trying to do, what he's trying to help these people understand, I think, is that following Jesus has to be more important than all the other things and requires a single-mindedness that the crowds may not yet have understood. And I think he's not doing it in a really kind of confrontational, aggressive way. He's doing it because he loves the crowds and he wants them to freely choose him to understand the choices that they're making. And so to help the crowd reflect on that, he, he, he makes this analogy of building a tower or going to war. These are um, events that require some thought, forethought, as I've said earlier on, and reflection. They're not simply a matter of pure abandon or passion on its own. And he gives two examples from everyday experience of first century Jewish life. That they would understand. Jesus compares becoming disciples to buildings and battles. Who wastes time and effort and resources on a building project, looking at Martin as we think about our church building project, (laughs) before knowing whether funds will be available to complete the project, without knowing that it's the right thing to do? In all seriousness, here in the church, We're not just wildly saying, yeah, we've got a great building and we're going to transform it into a glorious conference centre. Let's throw hundreds of thousands of pounds at it. We want to do what God wants. And so we've laid it on the altar and said, you know what, God, if you want us to pull this... Well, we'd get into trouble if we pulled it down. But if you want us to just leave this place and go meet in a cafe, we will, because it's your building. We're not going to be fixated on buildings. We want to be fixated on Jesus And if Jesus says, yeah, I want you to use this building for for my kingdom, my glory, then we'll throw ourselves into it wholeheartedly because we know that he will provide, because he is our provider. But we've thought about it, we've prayed about it, and we keep going back to God and saying, we want this to be on the altar for you, God. We're so grateful for all the resources that you've got and that you've given to us. In first century life, most of the people in Jesus' crowds would have understood the need to not waste their earnings and understand what it is to plan and consider. Or which king would not secure peace with his opponents if he thinks his military force is outmanned and outmaneuvered. They'd understand that. And there would be a cost of being a disciple. In his, in his day, it really would have cost something to follow Jesus. Families were divided over following this Jewish prophet from Galilee. Fathers said against children, brothers against sisters. In the end, Jesus doesn't want the audience to misunderstand what's at stake if they plan on continuing with him on his journey. And let's remember those early disciples. Many of them... Most of them, in fact, went to their death as martyrs. There was incredible cost. Jesus wants the crowd in this excitement to count the cost if it's traveling going to travel with him. Wow, it's tough, eh? Hey? And then just when you think it's tough enough, there's a final clincher, as is often the case with Jesus. We hear Jesus again says this, just to sum it up. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. And you can imagine the ripple going through the crowd going, what? What did he just say? Did he say everything? What, everything? Discipleship, I think, was never meant to be kind of like a hobby or extracurricular activity. Um, like joining the golf club. It was never meant to be a good idea, <laughs> in that sense. Or becoming a lifelong member of the National Trust. Should we do it? Yeah, well, we could, couldn't we? I know it's a bit expensive, but yeah, let's do it. Or the Tufty Club. Any, any of you old enough to remember the Tufty Club? Well, that's just me, perhaps. It was always supposed to be surrender. Complete, total, utter Surrender, and if we're honest, that feels profoundly uncomfortable. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, "I'm not sure I signed up to that. When I came forward or I responded to that altar call or I kind of decided to give my life to Jesus, it sounded like it was quite a good deal. Suddenly, you're making it not sound not quite so attractive." Now, I'm not trying to be stupid here. Of course, finding Christ is the most life-transforming glorious thing we can do. But we need to understand what we're doing. And I think when we do understand it, it becomes all the more exciting, because we're doing it with our eyes opened. And then suddenly, fear loses its grip on us, because what can hold us? Suddenly we're not afraid of death, or loss or persecution, or people not liking us, because we've given everything to Jesus anyway, and our lives are somehow hidden in him. And actually, there's really, really good news you'll be pleased to hear. And I'm going to finish by thinking about these thoughts. Last week, uh, last weekend, was my wedding anniversary. My darling wife. Married 22 years. Yes, I do look too young, I know. No one believes me that anymore, but 22 years um, we've been married. Feels like yesterday, is not it? Sarah's not nodding. (laughs) Feels like a life sentence, she says. 22 years. It's a glorious thing. And marriage is a glorious thing. I know it's not always easy, and sometimes it can go horribly wrong. God's a very gracious God. But weddings and marriage is supposed to be a special thing. I want to finish by reading some of the words that I, use, uh, that I used in the address of Jonathan and Aurelia. Are they here tonight, Jonathan and Aurelia? They oh, are lovely married couple. Oh, sweet, look. Sitting next to each other still, that's a good sign. Um, how long is it now? A month? Two months? A month? <laughs> Do you know number of days and hours, Jonathan? Oh. So, um, and I said these words, and they're often words that I use but it's true. These are the words that I said at part of their wedding. True love doesn't fail because at its heart, true love has everything to do with giving. It forces you to act, to move, to serve, to sacrifice, to give everything and to do so free from fear. True love gives, never stops giving, never stops loving. And there's help when things are tough, 1 John 4 says, love comes from God. And as a God of love, he longs to be the cement, that cosmic glue, supporting, underpinning and uniting you both throughout your lives. Do you remember this? Does this sound familiar? Good. Jonathan, I said this, Jonathan, today you have given yourself to Aurelia to share your life with her. Aurelia, today you have given yourself to Jonathan to share your life with him. Your rings symbolise that, an unbroken circle of love and stability. Marriage is a gift of yourself. It's a gift of your life. Jonathan, it means that Aurelia's happiness is more important than yours. You'll remember this bit. And Aurelia, before you get too smug about it, it means that Jonathan's happiness is more important than yours. That's the deal. That's a marriage made in heaven. Now, I know not all of us here are married or will have been married or have experienced a marriage that is like that. But the remarkable thing for you and me with God is that this is the deal for us. If we give ourselves fully, completely, utterly to God, everything we have and everything we are, you can do so in the knowledge That Christ gives Himself fully to you. Everything is, and everything He has. And that's a mind blowing truth. I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, we sung those words earlier. I offer my all, take my life, and let it be everything, all of me. Here I am, use me for your glory. Lord, there are times when we know we don't fully offer ourselves to you. But there's something within us that says that we want to. Lord, I'm not contented with half-hearted Christianity of holding stuff back. I'm not contented with just doing church. Lord, we want to be church, to be people who lay it all on the line for you, who fully yield ourselves to you. So Lord, here again right now. Lord, I give you my family. I give you my marriage. I give you my children, my house, my possessions. I give you my body, my life. Lord, I know at times I've done that and at times I take it back from you, but that's my heart. Lord, I pray that we would be able to do that as community, whether we're part of this church family or part of other families, that we would yield to you, that we would fully give ourselves to you in the knowledge that you have fully given yourself to us. That when we're afraid about what we need for tomorrow, you remind us that you are our provider. When we feel lost or abandoned, we're uncertain about the future, that you would remind us that you are the good shepherd, you are Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. You are Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. You're not distant from us. You promise that you won't leave us as orphans, but you come to us. When we feel weak, you remind us that you say that I will. my strength will be perfect for you, made perfect in your weakness. It will be sufficient for you. When we feel empty, you remind us that you promised to fill us with the Holy Spirit, that our bodies can be a temple in which you dwell. And that your longing for us is that our cup will overflow. And when we feel like we're going through the valley of the shadow of death and we experience death and loss and disappointments and shadows and darkness all around You remind us that you are the good shepherd and you will take us by your righteous right hand and you will lead and guide us and take us to a place of green pasture. You are the God who is gracious and kind and loving and all powerful and you are able. So we say we trust in you. In our weakness, we trust in you. Would you help us where we lack faith? Would you help us when we haven't understood the full picture? Would you help us to pick up our cross and follow you, Jesus, trusting that you're sufficient for us? Lord, we don't want a nice, padded, comfortable cross where there are no nails and no crown of thorns. We're willing to endure and even suffer disappointment and pain, if that's what it takes to be true in our love and faithfulness in following you. But we do so in the knowledge that we're more than conquerors through you, Christ Jesus. And that the same power that rose Christ from the dead is at work in us. And so we put our hope in you, knowing that those who trust in you will never be put to shame. Strengthen us, empower us, and fill us with your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name.